Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Can you imagine, as good as the singing is, in this little tiny church, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we get to heaven? Amen. Good night. I just, I can't fathom. And I'm sure that Behold Our God is going to be one of the first songs we sing up there. I'm convinced. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow may be another one. So it's good stuff. Good stuff this morning. John chapter 19. Just a short passage this morning. Let's start reading in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Father God, thank you for this, the third saying from the cross. I pray you'd speak to our hearts today. And I pray, Father, that we'd see, even though it's personal, directed at just a couple of people, Lord, it applies to us, and there's truth here for us. So teach us today. Speak to us, I pray. And I pray especially, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ as Savior, that they'll hear the gospel. They've heard it over and over in the songs that have been sung. May they hear it now in the message. And Lord, may the Holy Spirit speak to it to their hearts. And may they trust Christ today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have mentioned for the last few weeks that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday about 9 o'clock in the morning and remained on the cross until 3. And while he was there, he spoke seven times, seven times that we have record anyway in the scripture uh, during those six hours. We've already seen in Luke chapter 23 his first word from the cross, which was, Father, forgive them. In Luke chapter 23, we saw the second word, which is, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today we're going to speak about the third Woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. I want to consider just that third word this morning. Woman, behold your son, to the disciple, behold your mother. It does seem at first glance, doesn't it, to be a uniquely personal word. The other two, the first two that we talked about the last couple of weeks, are much easier for us to get our minds around as something that applies to us. But this seems to be something that he was... Uh, specifically and uniquely sharing with uh, Mary and John, his most cherished and loved relations. And, And certainly, as earthly relationships go, I doubt Jesus had a more close relationship than he had with his mother Mary. And certainly the scripture seems to indicate that of all the disciples and all the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, none held a spot in his heart quite like that of this disciple who we believe to be John. So the question for us this morning then is, does this personal word to Mary and this personal word to John have any application to you and to me? And I think it does. I think the answer is yes. And so let's look at it. Let's divide our study up and let's do it, let's do it like this. Let's, let's divide our study into three points. First of all, I want to talk about loud followers. Secondly, silent mourners. 
And finally, loving instruction. Loud followers. Loud followers. Last year, I think it was last year, it might have been two years ago, I had the privilege of attending a business conference in Philadelphia. I say privilege loosely. I never really enjoy those things. But while I was there, I happened to be there on a Sunday, and I decided that I would uh, attend church while I was there because that's what Christians do. They attend church on the Lord's Day. It happened to be the first Sunday after Easter, and I, I went to this old church in Philadelphia. I can't remember what it's called now. Christ Church, I think it's called. Such an old church that the church, the founding fathers of our country used to attend there. I actually sat in the pew that George Washington used to sit in while he was there. There's a little plaque on the wall. John Adams had sat in this very pew, and I thought, wow, this is great. I'm sitting on the very cushion that George Washington had sat on. I recall that there were very few in attendance that Sunday. It was the Sunday after Easter, and there might have been 50 people in the room. It was a big church, great, huge church, massive, big uh, pipe organ that covered, you know, bigger than our whole back wall. Huge place, and maybe 50 people scattered around. And I remember the first words the pastor said as he stepped in the pulpit that day. He said, my, what a difference a week makes. Because the week prior had been Easter, and the place had been packed. And as we survey this little knot of people, devoted followers at the foot of the cross, does not the same thought come to our mind? My, what a difference a week makes. Because it was just the preceding Sunday. That which we remember today, Palm Sunday, when the crowd had been nearly hysterical with fervor and worship and proclaiming uh, the coming of the King. Amy read the passage this morning. We need not read it again. We know what took place. Jesus was presented as the king, and they seemed at first to accept him. But here we are now, less than a week later. And loud followers are no longer following. Loud voices are no longer worshiping. They've melted away. They've been replaced by the angry voices of some shouting and demanding and exulting in the death of their king. We see that most of the disciples have fled in fear. And there remains just this tiny group of silent mourners clustered around the foot of the cross and looking on as the Savior lays down his life for the sins of the world. Loud followers. You can't see my notes, I know, I realize that. But on my notes, the word followers is in quotes. Because all of those people who shouted, all of those people who laid down palm leaves, all of those people who threw their clothes in the way, maybe not all of them, but most of them, We're not really following. And they drifted away. And they were soon replaced with this smaller group. And this smaller group was a group of silent mourners. John describes this little group. We read about it this morning. Who were the people that were clustered around the foot of the cross? This little group of silent mourners. Well, first of all, there were some who weren't really mourning. There were some, verses 23 and 24 tell us, that were soldiers. Roman soldiers were there. They were tasked with carrying out the crucifixion and remaining there until it was accomplished. We see him describing here them gambling for his clothing. These were rough men. They had seen this time and time again. This really meant nothing to them. They were indifferent. They were callous. They were disinterested to what was taking place on the cross right over their head. They had no idea. They were completely ignorant of its ramifications to them, eternal ramifications to their souls. Blind to their need. Blind to the great exchange that was taking place on the cross 
right over their heads. As such, I would suggest they picture me. And they picture you. And they picture all of us until we come to Christ. One man said, of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Son of God. I joined the mockery. And all of us can fit ourselves into that, can't we? But there was others there. Verses 25 through 27, we see this group of women and one of Jesus' disciples at the foot of the cross. We get the impression from John's account here that they were standing quite near. Obviously, they were near enough to have a conversation. I doubt that they were shouting across a great field. I imagine they were just talking. They were right there at the foot of the cross. And so we think that they were quite close at this time. But if you look at the other gospel writers, you find out they didn't start there. They actually were at one time quite far away from the cross. Matthew said many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And so not only were they far away, at one point there was a lot more of them, many Women, it says. Mark chapter 15, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the last son of Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so at first, they're afar, looking on. Perhaps that's while the crucifixion was actually taking place. Perhaps while the soldiers were nailing the hands and feet of the Lord of the cross and raising him in the air. Perhaps they held back. But once the soldiers had moved away and were gathered around gambling for his clothing, perhaps then they drew near. Think about the five people that he mentions here. They're very interesting. Mary Magdalene was one. Mary Magdalene was there. Jesus had delivered Mary Magdalene from demon possession, and she had then become a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 8, certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Mary Magdalene had been miraculously healed, marvelously saved. And she had become a devoted follower of the Lord, and now she stands at the foot of the cross, gazing up and watching the one who had healed her, seemingly unable to heal himself. This Mary... Mary Magdalene would soon have the interesting distinction of being the first person to see the risen Savior after the resurrection. In Mark chapter 16, we read that when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Mary Magdalene. She's such an important and interesting character in the New Testament that all kinds of nonsense and heresy has sprung up around the name Mary Magdalene. Every once in a while, this nonsensical heresy that Mary Magdalene might have been the wife of the Lord Jesus Christ comes up. And I will say, bunk. It is absolute nonsense. And it is truly heresy. This was, of course, the the whole subject matter of uh, Dan Brown's heretical book that came out some years ago, The Da Vinci Code, in the movie that was made uh, based on the same thing. I preached a whole series of sermons when that came out, debunking every single one of his points because they're not hard to to disprove. There's just simply no evidence whatsoever. Nonetheless, the name Mary Magdalene still comes up as being somehow associated uh, as the wife of Christ. Just this past week, I saw a news article that talked about the fact that there was a a fragment of 
of a manuscript that they, that they call uh, Jesus' Wife's Gospel. And, 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 and it has nothing to do with Mary Magdalene. It has nothing to do with Jesus having a wife. It just has a couple of words in there, uh, two or three words, and they therefore make this jump. It's, it's ridiculous. It's not true. Mary Magdalene was not Jesus' wife. There was no relationship between Mary and Jesus other than the relationship that Jesus has with you and I or any other of his followers. And the scene here at the cross, the conversation here at the cross, is the greatest evidence that that's true. Here we see Jesus taking care of his mother while his supposed wife is just saying they're completely ignored. It just doesn't make any sense. Had she been his wife, that wouldn't have been the case. No, his silence toward her here is the greatest evidence that that's a heresy. And so if you read that... Pitch it aside. It's not true. If you have the Da Vinci Code on your shelf at home, use it for a fire starter. It's garbage. Don't read any of that kind of nonsense. Mary Magdalene. But when we see her here, we must wonder, what would this devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ be thinking as she stood gazing up and watching him die? His mother's sister was there, John said. His mother's sister. Now, when we compare this passage with Matthew and with Mark, we get a pretty good idea of who his mother's sister was. We believe that she was Salome, the mother of James and John. The other Gospels make that clear. And here's here's what that means. That means that Jesus and James and John were cousins. It's an interesting little piece of trivia, isn't it? Salome is the one who had one time brazenly gone to Jesus and asked for thrones for her two sons, James and John. We read about that in Matthew chapter 20. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to him and with her sons, kneeling down and asked something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. And so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared for or by my father. His mother's sister, Salome. It's somewhat interesting that John didn't mention her by name, but then that fits John's pattern and makes us even more convinced that this is who it was. John doesn't mention himself by name in his gospel. He doesn't mention any member of his family by name in his gospel, and if this was Salome, and it was indeed his mother, then we can understand why he did not mention her. What must have been going through Salome's mind as she stood at the foot of the cross and witnessed the king not on the throne that she had expected, but dying on the cross? I wonder, was his question, are you able to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism? Was that running through her mind as she stood there? Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this person. But again, if we compare John's account with that of Matthew and Mark, we learn she was not only the wife of Clopas, but she was also the mother of James the Less. James the Less was one of the twelve. She was also the mother of Joses. But other than that, the Bible is silent. We don't really know much about who this woman was. There is a tradition from the second century. A, a writer by the name of Hegesippus says that Clopas was Joseph's brother. We can't put a lot of stock in that because this tradition is not the inspired word of God, but 
there is that thought out there, and if that is the case, then Mary, the wife of Clopas, was actually sister-in-law to Mary, uh, the mother of the Lord. And, of course, Mary, his mother, was there. Way back in the 13th century, there was a Latin poem written about this event. It's been translated into English. It says, near the cross, her vigil keeping, stood the mother, worn with weeping, where he hung the dying Lord. Through her soul, in anguish, groaning, bowed in sorrow, sighing, moaning, past the sharp and piercing sword. Oh, the weight of her affliction. Hers who won God's benediction. Hers who bore God's holy one. Oh, that speechless, ceaseless yearning. Oh, those dim eyes never turning from her wondrous, suffering son. Mary, his mother. The one person standing at the foot of the cross who had the greatest understanding of just what exactly was happening before her eyes. She had been chosen by God, informed by Gabriel. She had heard the prophecies of Anna and Simeon. She had heard the child Jesus mild rebuke when he was 12 years old in the temple. She had watched him grow from perfect infant through perfect childhood into perfect manhood. And she had cherished every moment and locked them away in her memories. She had been privy to and part of his very first miracle at the wedding at Cana. Warren Wiersbe points out that when we see the very first mention of Mary and John, she's at a wedding, and the very last mention, she's at a funeral. She had seen that. She had watched and followed for three years through the times of popularity and the times of opposition, and now she stands silently at the foot of the cross, marvelously, amazingly silent, watching her son atoning for the sins of the world. One man said, sympathetically, she entered into all his sufferings. The spear pierced her heart as it rent his flesh. With joy, she had followed his career, had feared and prayed for him, had rejoiced in his successes and wept over his disappointments. But now he was dying as a criminal, not as a hero. What an end to the life of such a son. Unless she add to his suffering, she did not give way to uncontrolled weeping, but repressed her grief as the sword pierced her soul. She did not faint or swoon. She stood. He had enough suffering of his own without her adding to his overflowing cup of sorrow. Mary, his mother, who now experienced the fulfillment of a prophecy she had heard 33 years earlier, when Simeon had said to her, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. None had been blessed with such a love as hers. And now none estimated as she did the spotless innocence of the victim. None could know as she knew the depths of his goodness, the unfathomable and unconquerable love he had for all. None could estimate as she the ingratitude of those whom he had healed and fed and taught and comforted with such unselfish devotedness. She knew that there was none like him and that if any could have brought blessing to this earth, it was he. And there she saw him nailed to the cross. The end actually reached. I attended a concert a while back. Beth and I went and listened to Mark Lowry. Mark Lowry was, I think it was at the Akron Baptist Temple some years ago. And during that, he sang his most well-known song, Mary, Did You Know, which we hear oftentimes at Christmas. I've sung it here at Christmas, and others have sung it as well. 
Prior to his singing that song, he shared a little of the inspiration, what it was that inspired him to write that song. And he said, interestingly enough, that the thing that most inspired him to write that song was the silence of Mary at the foot of the cross. He said that was key. And so he wrote, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water? And did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? And did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? And that this child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. And he said her silence at the cross convinced him that, yeah, she did. Maybe not know it all, maybe not understand it all, but she had a pretty good idea what Jesus was doing on that cross. Mary, his mother, was there. And then finally, the disciple Jesus loved was there. Now, who was that? We can't be absolutely dogmatic about who that was. That person is never actually identified by name in Scripture. But we have a pretty good idea. I think we're pretty convinced that it's a reference to John himself. John here stands with this cluster of women at the foot of the cross. And it's important to remember that he's here now, but he, like all the other disciples, originally left. He, like all the other disciples, forsook him and fled, Matthew chapter 26 says. Now he's back, but he also fled at one time. So five people are recorded as standing at the foot of the cross. Soldiers are gambling for his clothing just a few short feet away, and Jesus is dying above them. Mary Magdalene, his mother's sister Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, and perhaps the sister-in-law of his mother, his mother Mary, and the apostle John. These silent mourners, provide quite a contrast to the loud followers from the week before, don't they? And as I think about the contrast, I can't help but wonder, which crowd would I be in? Which crowd would you be in? Which crowd are you in now? You see, everybody wants to follow the king who they think can provide for their every need. Everybody wants that. But who will kneel at the cross and worship the dying Savior? who died to pay the price for their sins. Silent mourners. One last thought this morning. We've seen loud followers, silent mourners. Let's now turn our attention to really what we're supposed to be talking about today. And that's the words that he spoke to this little group. Loving instructions. Look at verse 26. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Let's break it down into just a couple sections. First of all is that word woman. For some reason... Every time Jesus uses the word woman, women's hackles go up. I don't know why that is. In our culture, for some reason, that seems to be interpreted in a derogatory way. I don't know why that is, but that is not what it was. Jesus was not being derogatory in any way here. Uh, one source I looked at said it's not a derogatory way of addressing Mary as some think. The term, the term woman is Jesus' normal, polite way of addressing women. It would be similar to the way we would use the word lady. It was not derogatory in any way. And we could look at various different ways. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. That wasn't derogatory. It was respectful. Luke chapter 13, Jesus saw her. He called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? None of these are derogatory. They were words of respect and concern. 
Behold your son. Woman, behold your son. Mary's husband was dead. Joseph was dead. And as the oldest son, interestingly, we just talked about this in Sunday school this morning in in Pastor Phil's class, but uh, the oldest son had the responsibility to care for his mother in the absence of the father. And he was saying to Mary here, John is going to take care of you from now on. He said to John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. To the disciple, behold your mother. Jesus had other brothers. He had other brothers. His brother James would eventually become pastor of the church of Jerusalem and would eventually write the book of James that we just recently finished preaching through. His brother Jude would go on to write the little book of Jude, the very last, next to the last book in our New Testament. Wouldn't it seem likely that the care of Mary would fall to one of those? And yet neither one of those was a believer at this time. And so of the twelve apostles that Jesus had, and of all of the disciples and followers who followed him during his earthly ministry, he seemed to have no closer relationship than that of John. And so he here entrusted Mary to his care. He was saying to Mary, take care of my mom. So in this third word from the cross, we have this uniquely personal thing. It's Jesus' parting instruction to his mother and to his friend John. Take care of her, John, and he will take care of you, Mom. Tradition tells us that John did that. He did indeed take care of Mary. She lived apparently about another 12 years. Tradition also tells us that John refused to leave Jerusalem as long as she was alive. And then after that, he did move to Asia Minor, where he had a long and successful ministry, especially in Ephesus. So I wonder this morning, as we think about these things, is there application? What does this mean to us? Of all the sayings on the cross, this is probably the hardest one for us to look at and say, how does that apply to me? But I do think there's some application, and I think we can think of all kinds of but I, I just want to mention three. Three statements this morning as I close that I think we can apply this to our lives. See if you don't agree. First of all, Mary knew who he was. And therefore she stood silently trusting even when everything appeared to be going wrong. We can apply that to our lives, can't we? There's so much we can learn from Mary. But she knew that Jesus was in control, even though it didn't look like it. And so she trusted him silently. So many of us fall apart at the slightest trouble. So many of us, the slightest little hardship or difficulty comes our way, and we wonder if God knows what is happening in our lives. And yet he knows, and he is still in control. Jesus was still in control on that cross, even though every indication was he was not. And all we'd like Mary need to learn, to trust silently regardless of how things look. In the midst of a life that might seem to be spinning out of control, he's in control. The fact we don't see it, the fact it doesn't look like that to anybody else in the world does not change the truth. He's in control. And so the first thing I'd suggest is that we learn from Mary, who knew who he was and therefore stood silently trusting, even when everything appeared to be going wrong. I think we can learn something from John. John was at the foot of the cross, even though... He had earlier forsaken the Lord and ran off with everybody else. In a future sermon, we're going to talk about the denial by Peter. And we're going to talk about the restoration of Peter alongside of the Sea of Galilee. One of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, I think. 
And we oftentimes think of Peter as the one who betrayed the Lord in these days. But you know what? John was right there, too. They were all right there. All the disciples forsook him and fled. They all failed the Lord, even John. But hallelujah, that failure did not stop him coming to the cross. Failure did not block access to the cross, nor did it bring anything but loving words from the Savior when he went there. Not only that, Jesus not only completely ignored his failure, but entrusted him with his most beloved relationship on earth. He entrusted him with his mother. In the same way we see that when Peter denied his Lord, and Jesus accepted him completely when he turned him back, and not only accepted him, but entrusted him with the care and feeding of his sheep. Oh, listen, he forgives our sins at the foot of the cross. He forgets our sin at the foot of the cross. There's an old gospel song that I love. Connie will know this one well. I remember the days when I was bent low with the burdens of sin and strife. But Jesus came in and rescued me and gave me a brand new life. And now as I thank him day after day for washing my sins away, it seems I can almost hear the voice of the blessed Savior say, What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. And when the flesh becomes weak, it's then I can speak to the Savior who's with me each day. Oh, Father, forgive me. Hear my plea. And he washes my sins away. Each time that I bow to give him thanks for removing my guilt and shame, he cannot recall what I'm talking about, for his answer is always the same. What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. We can always turn to the cross. We can always return to the cross. We can always kneel there, no matter how we have failed our Savior, no matter how we have forsaken him and fled, we can always turn back, and he will always Accept us there. Third and last application. And maybe the main thought of this passage is that Jesus never stopped caring for his own. He never stopped caring for his own. Even while on the cross, Mary was on his heart. And Mary was on his mind. So was John. And so were you. And so was I. Jesus never stops loving. He never stopped and he never stops. Oh, we need to get hold of that truth. If you've heard nothing else I've said this morning, hear this. Jesus never stops loving. Not even the pain of the cross could stop it. And nothing ever will. Jeremiah said, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And nowhere was that everlasting love shown more clearly than here. Here, on the cross, caring for his own. Jesus had said, greater love hath no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And nowhere was that greatest of love shown more than here. Loving his friends at the foot of the cross. So hear the words of love to Mary and John. And know this. He loves you no less. He loves you just the same. Jesus never stopped caring for them. And Jesus will never stop caring for you.